Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast, Invaluable, Achieving Clarity on Value. Today, we'll be diving into Chapter 7, The Three Goddess Braid. Now, when we, started out, when we start out this chapter, the poetry at the beginning of it says, They said, learn strategy to come out ahead. Strangely, when the self was found, strategy came out true. And that really goes back to the last chapter in which it talked about when you have that marriage of the head, habit, and heart, your strategy will come out clearly. Um, and so this chapter begins with a personal story, actually, of your your mentor. And this is kind of the, the, the origin of the chapter title, The Three Goddess Braid. I would love for you to... Um, discuss this story with your mentor a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, this was a pretty special experience. This was, this was one mentor who I, uh, I met through a meditation circle and, and these circles are also very special. They're called awakened circles. And this is a, this is a, I almost hesitate to say nonprofit, but it's more like a community movement to to hold space for meditation in a very humble way in people's homes. And there was a particular family in Santa Clara, California, where they've been doing this uh, for over 20 years. I think the pandemic caused a shift in format, but it still happens. And so you meet a lot of people who you otherwise would not have met, who are just coming together to meditate and reflect on life and, and, on a philosophical passage. And that's where I met this uh, gentleman, Ganoba. And it turns out he was a management consultant and I was also studying management and then, um, then I was professionally practicing the art of uh, decision analysis. So, so I had this opportunity to hang out with him a little bit. And when his last moments came, when, when his, uh, and when his time of passing came, I had the privilege to be near him along with his family. And, and that's where this story comes from. So I remember walking into the room and he didn't really acknowledge me. He was, he was in, uh, you know, wired up to, to all kinds of gadgets that you would see in the hospital. His uh, daughters were around him, two of his daughters and he was talking to them and talking to other visitors. And somehow I didn't feel like he, I wasn't sure that he noticed me. And then I, uh, and I think he was talking to one of his daughters and he said, okay, I'm going now. So the other daughter had just taken a break in the break room. So I was sent out to go summon the other daughter saying, hey, you know, dad is leaving. So I ran and told her and, and of course she went in and I stayed outside in order to give them privacy. And the next thing I know, after some time had passed, I was called inside and he had definitely noticed me and he had something to say to me, he wanted to talk to me. Now just think about that for a moment, right? A person who is dying, okay, has his full wits about him and he is somehow in charge of that experience of passing He's having these conversations he wants to have, and now he wants to have a conversation with me. <laughs> and so, so then I go in and we, we have this conversation where 
he he asked me, what is the purpose of your life? And I don't know, these things happen, you, you're in a strange zone of clarity. And I immediately responded, well, it's to help people think about their purpose. So then he uh, posed me this riddle. And this riddle is something he carried, which his family told me, like all his life, which is which grade is really important? Knowledge, motivation, or skill? And the answer, of course, is all three are important. Otherwise, you cannot make a braid. These are, these are three strands, and you have to braid them together. And when I thought about it a little later, it's like, hey, this maps really well to the head, heart, and habit. Knowledge is head, motivation is heart, and habit is skill. It's, it's just the innate skill that people have. So I thought this was a very nice metaphor for describing what you get when you get your mapping. And I like the fact that, you know, this is a, this is more of a feminine metaphor, but it's also a little bit culturally rooted in, in the Indian context where we, we take an important value and we turn it into a God, right? And, and, and we have defined in previous chapters, what is a God? In a, in a secular context, it's 100% commitment to a particular value. So, so knowledge, motivation, and skill, there you have it, the three goddesses, and we want to have their blessings and have them interweave in our lives. That's the, that's the thing that I took away that, hey, this is the work I'm already doing, and he's given me a very nice way of communicating that. And so, yeah, and, and, and I love that story, especially talking about how your mentor, even in his last moments, wanted to still have a conversation. I mean, that, I mean, that says a lot about the type of person that he was as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in your, in your book, um, you know, talking about that three goddess braid, it says on page 208, to make the framework of the heart, habit, and head value succinct, I will henceforth refer to them as the three goddess braid. So that kind of gives the uh, what the chapter seven is all about, where the three goddess braid comes from. Um, and then a little further down on 208, it says, where are authentic voices buried in some deep chambers of our heart? His, exor his exhortation is actually an answer to the question, how do you know that you have arrived at your values? Is it the feeling as I have asked you to recognize is it someone else who knows you well and will now validate your values? Is it a famous figure whose inspiration you now cite? Whose authority is it that says your values are valid? It's yours. Only you will know. There is a point of time where all the best gifts that intuition and science can offer will have been used. And now, here you are with some insights into yourself. The moment at which you declare that this is your ground, it becomes your ground. It is valid because you are valid. And I think that puts a very nice bow uh, even on the last uh, few chapters where it's like, okay, now, now that you have done the work and you have studied the heart and the habit, the habits and the head, we've formed the braid and now we can move forward and see where this takes us. Um, and so getting into the next section talks about descriptive versus normative 
And um, I would really like you to break it down uh, in layman terms uh, for our listening audience about what is the importance of the descriptive versus normative um, when it comes to your uh, disciplines or values? Yeah, that's a really good question. So think about physics, right? When we've all been exposed to physics at some level, physics is a descriptive science. And a descriptive science is one that gets its validity by describing the world as it is. So in other words, if I have a physics theory, it is valid when you do an experiment that proves that theory that, hey, the world does indeed work this way, okay? Normative, on the other hand, is unreal in the sense that there is no mathematical construct in nature. It's in our head. So, so note how difficult it was. From A lot of kids struggle with mathematics and they go, oh, okay, this is a completely artificial way of thinking. But once we have learned it, it is extremely useful to organize our world in, in ways that we um, find effective. And so validity in the normative world is very different from the descriptive sciences. Here, validity comes from consistency with foundational axioms. And axioms is just a fancy word for principles. So if you declare certain principles and say, hey, if you accept these principles, the whole discipline follows, then any new addition to the discipline has to be established by showing it's consistent with those foundational principles. And not saying that those principles are the, the best ones, but if you accept them, the rest of it follows. And so I am claiming that we need that distinction in order to understand or even have a conversation about validity. And by the way, this is a very simple set of distinctions, but it is astonishing how not, how it's not that widespread as it should be. Yeah, and and um, yeah, because when when you talk about it, um, you say on two eleven, I'm asking you to be so bold as to declare the values you have discovered as your normative value foundation. Only you can do so. The validity of your values is you. You said so. This leap from the descriptive to the normative is not an academic switch. It is the transition from the discovery of your creative canvas to your act of painting on it. It's almost like you need to take um, some ownership of what you have discovered. And it might be a little um, scary at first, especially if uh, someone is in a certain field that is different from, you know, what they have discovered when it comes to their three goddess braid. Um, and, and, and a little further down, you said, um, you are not here to be a passive spectator to your life. You have the opportunity to participate in your own evolution and to do that. Your, your three goddess braid has to become your personal normative value foundation. Decisions you make from here on can be judged for consistency with the braid. So a lot of the work that people are doing uh, from this book, it gets really deep and personal. So instead of getting your values from the outside world, getting validation from others, you're now dwelling within, you did the work, you have your three goddess braid, and now, now though, 
you have a foundation that many people may not have because a lot of people are still getting their values from the external world. And so that can be a little terrifying at first. However, it may be detrimental to go against what you have discovered. Um, go on. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, yeah, yeah. No, that, that these are great thoughts. And, and it's, it's this dance between descriptive and normative that is so fascinating, right? That the, the fact that you, know, you people often say things, oh, I value this, I value that. If you were just starting that journey of declaring your values, but you've not done the digging, right? Then you don't have descriptive val validity. And, and so the descriptive is extremely important. How do you know this is truly you? And so we have gone through six chapters of deepening inquiry in order to validate, in order to say, yeah, this is me. There's certain tests for it, that this is so. That's why the the part that we've, all, all that we've done so far, it, it comes very strongly in the descriptive sciences. But then once you have arrived, right, at that clarity, as you rightly said, now is, is, it's our opportunity to say, this is our strategic framework because it has descriptive validity I am now going to use it normatively. I am going to participate. Until this point, it was subconscious. I wasn't using it intentionally in my decision-making. But from this point on, I will. And that is a very powerful moment. Yeah, and that, and that is very, very important um, for them to keep going. Um, it's very powerful indeed. Uh, you talk a little bit on 212, bottom of 212, it says, now that we are set up with the notion of creating our own value rationality, let's take a deeper dive into decision analysis, which is basically applied decision theory. It gives me a structured way to face any decision that comes my way using the six elements of decision quality, framing, alternatives, information, values, integration, and commitment to action. My work in this book is a deep dive on the values aspect of decision making. Um, just to paraphrase, it gets a little bit into uh, really discussing not just what do I want and how much do I want it, but who do I want to be? And then a little further down, it says, moreover, this work has led me to the conclusion that the value of a good decision analysis for me is that it helps take complexity off the table so I can focus on who I want to be. And I feel like that is very important as well, because a lot of the issues that arise from people getting their values from the external world is that it's not no, it's not their values. It's not necessarily their values. I mean, in rare circumstances, there might be some kind of um, overlap. But in general, people don't have a good understanding of who they are and, you know, who they want to be. And so that actually makes it way, their lives way more complex and their work way more complex than they want, which brings a lot of stress, which brings a lot of emotional turmoil. And so this line especially where it talks about taking complexity off the table that that to me is very encouraging because it is telling the person like yes i, I understand um you're very inspired by what you have discovered within yourself and i know it may be a little scary as you begin this journey but just think about how much clearer your path now is um 
you know, it, it's a lot different than, uh, you know, say taking a hero's journey where someone's like, okay, just, we're going to kick you out of the house and you have to go find your way as opposed to a clearer path where someone's like, yeah, you need to go slay that dragon in particular right over there. It's a very clear distinction. It takes away the complexity of like, what monster am I supposed to slay? I, I, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the nice thing is that principle is like a fractal and you've just uh, gone to, uh, you've applied the principle now to the va values inquiry. And that's kind of interesting. Um, and, and it's also true that if you, if you take a sophisticated situation, sophisticated analysis in complicated situations, there it's, it's, it can be very fuzzy. Like, hey, which values are operational here? And you can't quite say until you've done the 50 push-ups, done the mathematics behind it, the analysis. And there usually comes a point where you say, okay, with the best analysis I have, here's what the implication is for each of our alternatives. And when you paint that picture, that ultimately becomes a story of values saying you could do this, but that would mean you're this kind of a company or an organization or a person. If you do that, you're a different kind of person and both might be okay. You have to now choose who you want to be. And that is a very, very rich and rewarding conversation to have. Very much so. An aphorism 7.12 and 7.13 says, from coming out ahead to coming out true, to coming out ahead toward our truth, that is strategy. Everything just starts uh, coming together. And um, you start you start out um, the next section really discussing uh, taking that complexity off the table in a sense. Uh, you have someone, a couple named Sam and Mary, and Mary is trying to decide whether she should join her husband's career or not. Not an easy decision. Um, would you would you like to discuss that story in particular a little bit? That was a, a fantastic conversation. And this was a very talented couple and doing very different things and about to get married. So, and I've known them over over the next several years as well and seen the the trajectory that Mary has taken. And then this conversation was a very special moment in time where the question framed to me was, hey, should I join my husband's business in the hospitality sector? And I was being asked that question because I was a student of decision analysis. And I resisted the temptation to go and look at the prospects from a financial perspective and said, let's look at who you want to be. Let's try a values mapping exercise. And the result was quite astonishing for Mary. We discovered that her heart was in supporting healing journeys in people. And the habit that was strongest for her was avoiding attachment. Now that is the hallmark of a good therapist. If you, if you think about it, like a therapist who gets attached to every person who comes their way is gonna burn out pretty quickly. So avoiding attachment as a, it's, it's a very rare skill for somebody to just be wired that way. So I remember telling Mary, hey, I'm just astonished you. First of all, what are you doing in mergers and acquisitions? <laughs> you, you, have you considered life as a therapist? 
and and she um, she was shocked. She said, "You know, that's been my uh, deepest desire in my heart that I've always wanted to do this." And and now, of course, I don't know how one can transition from mergers and acquisitions to being a therapist, but that's that's her life's work. And she did her fifty push-ups, and she has now become a love coach. And I'm I'm very impressed. Like she, that's where she delivers healing journeys to people. And love coaches like the external shell, people who are struggling in romantic relationships, or want to establish themselves in you know get ready for that part of life. They come to her, and she's able to help them out. And and her skill of avoiding attachment is a superpower, not a liability. So she really landed her her mapping through her life. It's very inspiring, actually. Yeah, and that's a that is a great example of truly f- following your three goddess braid and not and not just succumbing to the external pressures, you know, because then that's just going to make life so much better. Honestly, for everyone around you, it's going to have a ripple effect, um, even though it may not be exactly what you may want from the outset. Um, and so uh, moving on as well, uh, another thing in testing that three goddess braid is also talking about group dynamics. Um, <laughs> the, I, I actually laughed um, on this part. It says, uh, one of the early lessons that decision analysis learn is that there is no such thing as a rational group decision. Professor Ron Howard, uh, who you mentioned in previous chapters in uh, episodes said would tell you in class that if there was such a thing as rational group decision making politics would disappear as would marriage counseling we just have a way of taking the right step for group context the only known way for us humans to make a rational decision in groups is to align on our preferences and act as one unit i thought that was really good especially because you know it it gets a little difficult when you do the mapping uh, for yourself, but now you have to bring that together with someone else, um, especially if we're talking in the context of a company. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I laughed, especially at that part, talking about no such thing as a rational group decision as, you know, they talk about that mob mentality. It's just, a, we have a tendency to kind of succumb to, you know, what the, what is, what does the group want, you know, instead of focusing on ourselves. Um, but before we get into some more examples, do you want um, to tell our listeners anything about when it, uh, group dynamics and how that's something to look out for? Yeah, I think, I think the point of this section is that when you are applying these principles to a group, the way to do it is to get really clear on the set of values that people in that group will accept and will want to establish. So so you have to pretend that you're one unit with the same set of values. And that's the only way you can have this conversation of, is this the right decision for the group? So it's a, you know, it's all it, it's both a thought experiment and also very real because we are different people in different spaces right if you go to your let, let me give you a simple example if you go to a friend's home for dinner you are a different kind of person you are now entering somebody else's space with their set of principles their set of rules and at some level you have to accept those 
if you are going to show up as a good guest, right? Now, of course, you should have your own individuality and don't lose that. But when you are in that space, you are accepting certain shared principles and, and norms in a sense. And, and that's just generally how it goes, that whenever you go into group spaces, people have to come together and agree on what that common set of principles are. And if they don't agree, then you don't really have a group coming together. And you, have, you might have chaos, <laughs> and then you have the work of discovering what those values are. So um, we're getting into this next section uh, titled Negotiation, and it's talking about uh, your uh, a friend, um, a CEO and entrepreneur named Chris. And um, I would love for you to uh, talk about this story a little bit. Yeah, this is uh, this is a great one, actually. So Chris came to me again because of my background, and he thought I could help him figure out, hey, should he let his company be acquired? Should he um, do a merger with another company? And a third option was to was to just blaze on ahead on his own. And of course, we could do this with mathematical modeling of the economics. I, I, I knew how to do that quite well, but that's not where I wanted to go. Instead, I told him, let's try a values analysis and let's map your values and see who you want to be. And when we did that, it turned out that at heart, like what made him, what made Chris emotional was fulfilling a product's destiny. He was just such a product person. He felt that there was a lot of value in bringing a product to life and every product has its own destiny. And it, he feels it extremely rewarding to see a product really meet that destiny. Now his superpower was in, in making complex things routine so everybody could do them. And, and that's why he was such a good leader. And where he was applying all of this was in nanochemistry. He was a deep polymer expert. So so very interesting value map. I, I don't know anybody else like him. And, and, and when we found this mapping, he just resonated. He's like, this is me, 100%. And when we then applied this mapping as his normative foundation to make these decisions, it became pretty clear that the company that was offering to acquire him was not really going to be that interested in, in fulfilling a product's destiny. It's, uh, you know, they were, they just wanted a strong pipeline and they were not really interested in investing in building truly innovative products. The second company that was thinking of doing a merger, they, they were a more powerful partner and, and their reason was to really kill the product. They, they were competition. So it became very clear that if he truly wanted to fulfill the product's destiny, the right decision for, for him was to blaze on ahead on his own. And this was a very tough decision. And you know, one of the things that Judith and I were discussing is, this is an example where he did it and there was an investor coup, maybe they didn't agree with his decision and he lost his company. And so this is a, this is a story, good story of the outcome is not a happy one, okay? And yet the decision he made was very true to who he was. And so after having lost everything, life moved on, years passed, he is, in, is very successful now in what he's doing. 
and he is doing something that brings out his braid. And he, he told me several years later that, hey, the one thing I carry is that little napkin. We, we did this mapping in a cafe and I sketched out his three goddess braid on a napkin. And that is the one thing that survived. He still treats that as a precious um, you know, artifact in his life. And so he sent me a picture of that and, and that shows up on, on that chapter uh, at the end of that story. So that's special. You know, you see, these are very humble, very sweet conversations, but very profound conversations. No, I, I, I actually think that that is very important to to note that even though that external situation didn't work out for him, obviously him having that mapping and him having his own braid and understanding um, who he is on a fundamental level really affected him so deeply that he literally kept the napkin. And several years later, I mean, I feel like that's so important because it meant that no matter what was going to happen in in life, he was going to be okay if he stuck to the foundation that he created within himself, especially, you know, when it comes to work. Um, And so, you know, even I myself reading this chapter, I was like, well, the outcome didn't turn out good. So, I mean, why (laughs) like i don't know i find that very interesting because it was almost like you did all this work feeling so inspired and everything and then you get one example of of something not working even though there were so many examples of it working but I, i feel like as human beings we tend to focus on the the negative sometimes you know when we should be focusing on you know, what have you learned within yourself? Like, I feel like that, I feel like that really speaks to the importance of this book in some ways. Um, Mm. You know, because we're so used to just going off of, you know, defining our lives by like, say a paycheck or something, not realizing Mm. that no matter how secure we are in a job, the economy could sway one way or technology can sway a certain way. And all of a sudden we find ourselves laid off. We find ourselves, mm. you know, our whole sector is is defunct. There are literal, literal whole cities that were built around factories and steel mills and coal mines, for example. And, you know, whole cities were built in live, like people had these rich, wealthy, not maybe not wealthy, but like, you know, very lucrative lives surrounding these businesses that are now defunct and out of practice. And, you know, so it's kind of like, at what point do we stop looking for external validation and start looking toward the internal, even though I didn't find this story uh, appealing at first, uh, after discussing it, I, I've, it appeals to me now, <laughs> basically. Yeah. There's um, decisions and outcomes right there. Right. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so um, the next section gets into nature or people. This involves, um, you know, multiple people trying to make the right decision, uh, especially when we're talking about nature conservancy and debating on whether nature or people are more important, which is a debate that is very prominent uh, today. can you tell me a little bit about the about this section and how it was resolved um, 
uh, for our listeners here? Yeah, this is this is a very special body of work. Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to work with some very talented scientists at the Nature Conservancy, and the the entire story is actually there on the internet. If you search for the business of impact measurement, you find a playbook on Medium, and this was co- uh, this was co-authored with the scientists. So it's not just my perspective; it's everybody's voice in in that journey. And the key thing that I found in in doing this work is they've had a lot of consultants come and go. But what was different about our engagement was we started with who they wanted to be. And they felt heard by that. And and we had established this value foundation coming from them that they were really about people in nature thriving together. This is a pretty big foundational declaration. And being who they were, finding pragmatic solutions was their superpower. That's what TNC is known for. And conservation by design, they have they've literally written the book on it. So these three things coming together was uniquely them. So so all the metrics, all the evaluations, everything that happens is it's sitting on that foundation. And that really stuck with people that this is this is uh, a way of changing the narrative, changing the game that we are playing, because in the past in you know many nonprofits, they just not see the people who are affected by nature and and our conservation programs tended to be myopic about it and and this has pretty devastating consequences outside the united states where people depend on forests for their livelihoods and so by declaring that their well-being matters now we're talking about conservation efforts that are more holistic and this is largely the direction the conservation uh, space has gone into which is a very very good thing in my view so so being clear about it and and being intentional is a was a really powerful outcome that hey this is how you build strategy if you really mean this then this is how everything else follows from it and and that's what i learned from them it was very inspiring work that they're doing there um and and also a little further down um you decided to use an alternative term for the three goddess braid, what was your decision in, in doing so? Well, it, it's not that I'm switching. It, it's that I'm really offering an alternative because I, I do recognize that not everybody likes feminine terms. I like it a lot. And uh, I like the metaphor and visualization of the three goddess braid because it reminds me of DNA strands. Um, but I, I, I understand that people might be uncomfortable people make business very very serious work and so they may not want to use this with a serious you know straight face if if that's the discomfort then you can use an alternative term like meta strategy or the ground beneath your strategy so and you know i'm not limited to these words you could find your own word for it these are the two that i have found and they're alternatives depending on your context and who you are and you know what you're comfortable with Oh, yeah, that that sounds that sounds great to me. Um, and, and it's always good to give people, uh, you know, options as well. I believe. Um, and so, mo- you know, moving forward, uh, we're talking about getting back to numinous metrics, purpose, and zero. In the second paragraph, you talk about first values exist, 
like body temperature, and people perceive and report them as best they can, possibly with bias, I call them as I see them. Second, people know their values and preferences directly, as they know the multiplication table, I call them as they are. Third, values or preferences are commonly constructed in the process of elicitation. They ain't nothing till I call them. And this is very, I feel like I really like that because it's talking about how the values are inter, they're, they're already a part of you. It's just a matter of discovering it within. It's almost like as if we have uh, different organs within our body, they're already there, but then they may not have a greater meaning to you until you actually learn about what those certain organs do. It's kind of like when someone is sick or someone has a disease, um, all they can think about is there is an issue, there is a problem, there is something wrong with my body and, and, and it's causing me pain and suffering. But then when they get checked out, um, the physician or whoever it is is saying like, oh, it is your liver. Okay, what does my liver do? You get an explanation. All of a sudden, it, it, it gains so much more meaning. It doesn't. It's almost like it doesn't just... It's not just a liver anymore. It, it, there's something more to it. You start to learn about what makes what what the liver does, why it's important, what what um in comparison to the rest of the organs, things of that nature. And I feel like that is almost the equivalent of what we're doing here, but on a more um, you know personal level when we're talking about the head and the heart and the and the habit. Um, it's, it's already there. It's just now we're almost taking away the, the pain and suffering and almost sickness that people may have internally, but they just don't understand where it's coming from. Um, at least that, that's how it spoke yeah. to me. That, that's interesting. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, I think this is, this, the, the stuff that you quoted is from a very, very um, important research paper by Amos Tversky and Richard Thaler. And these are two well-known descriptive decision scientists, meaning they're not decision analysts, but they are the people who describe how people actually make decisions. They study that. And, and they've given three frames of reference, right? And, and the interesting thing is we have passed through all three frames. So I, I call it as I see it. You know, that's the that's the listening for life experiences, stories, the tests, the principles. I call it as they are. And now I'm thinking about the the Hartman distinctions on values, right? What what is the axiomatic thing here? And and then uh, and, and, and also in a sense of, hey, this is just me, right? That sense of feeling, the validity there. And it ain't nothing until I call them. And that's the normative value foundation that, hey, now that I've said this is who I want to be, it is real, <laughs> at least in the, in the sense of engaging with the rest of the world. So, so the reason that this, this extract spoke to me is because we've passed through each of these stages, right? And, and you're right, like, you know, it's like you're looking at an individual part, but then it's in the context of a whole like the liver example that you gave, it's sitting in the context of the well-being of the whole body and it participates, right? So understanding something in isolation is only good as far as it goes. It's got to sit in the full context of your life. 
And that's why this chapter is so important. It brings it together in terms of strategy. And in redefining, you know, people have different definitions of strategy. It's a very overused word. And in, uh, somewhere in the beginning of the chapter, I think I talked about it, that some people think strategies is the correlation between actions and outcomes. And that's a little bit of an insipid definition, but that's the most operative definition in strategy research. And still others think, hey, strategy is how you get from point A to point B, provided point B is where you want to get to. Sure, that, but that is amoral in a sense. It, it, it is neutral in terms of where you should be going. And, and I prefer this third definition of strategy that, hey, there has to be some connection with values. It's about coming out true to who you are and who you want to be. Okay, so we're getting um, into the next section, with, which is policing with values. Now, this was a very interesting section for me because it talked about the Stanford Police Department and how they approached their um, job as if everyone was clients, as if the people that the general public that they dealt with were their clients and not necessarily someone that they should have like a conflict with or... Uh, engage with in a negative way. Um, and I found that very interesting as far as it changes the entire approach on how they are starting to police. Um, policing is uh, very controversial uh, in the nation today. And so for me, I really liked how they they didn't they didn't set out with the goal of punishing it was more about safety and so like one example was that um during a protest for example um instead of you know hitting the protesters with like (laughs) like pepper spray or tear gas or something like that like they would bring water bottles um they would uh separate uh certain streets so that the protesters were pretty much guided on where they could go. Um, they would get uh, people that were drunk and place them, you know, basically in a type of quarantine until they were feeling better. And then, you know, basically it, it, just to make sure that they were safe, that they were going to be okay. Um, I was very impressed with their, their values. Um, and uh, I, I was just wondering, like, what what made you choose this police department in particular? Like, was it their their um, how much they really placed, you know, value on uh, safety rather than um, something else, or why did you choose them? That that's a great question. Actually, I didn't know anything about them when I chose them. I was doing research in a totally different area. And it was, I still remember, it was about decision-making on the edge where people at the peripheries of the organization had to make pretty meaningful decisions. And at that time, uh, I was in a lab that was uh, funded by the U.S. Navy, but I didn't have security clearance to study the Navy. So I figured, hey, who's who's the closest to the Navy? Who has a similar property in, in that sense where... People at the edges make pretty important decisions, and that would be the police. 
So that's what got me in there to study how they make decisions. And it was after studying them. And in fact, uh, I, I went in with a particular research method that deliberately avoids a thesis. And, and this comes out of anthropology. It's called ethnography. And ethnography takes many years to do it. It's a, it's a discipline. And I, well, what I did could be called more, uh, we term more as ethnographic field work, where I did ride-alongs, participant observation, and uh, interviews, and in, in, in some sense, open-ended interviews. There's a lot of coding that happens where you look at, look at what you've got and try to identify themes. And then the research ends with coming up with the best question that fits the, uh, the data that you have. So it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable research method. And it turns out, many people don't know this, it has a lot more shelf life than quantitative analysis because it studies culture and culture doesn't change very fast. And it is through that ethnographic fieldwork that I realized this police department cared, um, cared more about education just as much as they cared about public safety. And both of these things were quite different from what I thought they might have cared about, which is enforcement. So this was a very bottom-up uh, experience of learning. And that's what, uh, this was very early on. This is even before I had decided a thesis topic. And in fact, while studying them, when I realized that they care about these deeper things, this is what got started me in my, on my values journey where I'm like, huh, so they care about public safety and they care about education. How on earth am I going to turn this into dollars? It's like, uh, because at the, at, at the end of the day, you have to make decisions about resources and investment that is in, in monetary terms. So how do you, how do you put a valuation on these deeper things? And, and that's where the whole journey began. And I, I think I have, I've alluded to some of the story when, um, in the preface, when Professor Howard then finally turned me on to, uh, Hartman's work, which he had experienced when he was an undergrad at MIT, it, it all happened through the police department here because of these amazing questions that I was, you know, living with. And it was also fascinating to me how you um, were able to map them as well, uh, which goes very well with identifying, um, you know, it, it basically by mapping them, it's something that other police departments could also use as a framework. Um, now they may have to tailor things based on their population and their, um, their staff and all that, but it can give them a general idea of what is working in Sanford that may work in other places, which is very important. Um, it says on 234, the Stanford's police, the Stanford police's heart value is public safety, not enforcement. Enforcement is one tool available to them by virtue of become of being peace officers to be used in service of keeping the public safe, which is a, that's a whole different approach um, uh, than just enforcement. Um, and then this, a little further down, it says their habit value is education. And then um, on the top of 235, finally, values-based policing is their head. So... By having them, by having it mapped out like that, do you think that other police departments should really take a look at their framework and possibly adapt it? You know, it's uh, there's a lot that I'm naive about, but uh, 
but there is some idealism in here in my heart at least when i read a story like this i i just wonder why would this not be of interest and of great value in public police departments and what would happen if we treated people with respect including people who were causing nuisance or causing trouble if we still started out from the foundation that they deserve dignity they deserve respect and for their own safety we might put them away for a little bit but let's just please uh keep their dignity in mind at every step what would happen what would the world look like if we were to lean into that question i i don't claim to have any answers but i think the question is worth leaning into that that's far more juicy than a particular answer you know the stanford police department has their version of an answer i think every police department if they were to lean into it they might find a, a real wellhouse of creativity here yeah i really think it's worth looking into especially as um you know a police department uh, you know, they might be looking at it as, well, perhaps if we turn to more um, safety and, and change our dynamic, you know, maybe the police department might get sued less. Um, there might be more faith, public faith in the, um, in what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I've heard people say multiple times, no one talks ill of the firefighters, you know, <laughs> which I, I get is, I get as a whole different um, job. But at the same time, it's like, you know, if there is some criticisms, it is worth looking into, um, especially instead of just ignoring the, uh, the issues. Um, bottom of 235 says, pause here for a moment. Look at the nationwide protests around police behavior, including excessive force use against peaceful protesters. Imagine what would our society look like if police nationwide were committed to the safety of all if they viewed protesters as their clients, if they offered water bottles instead of violence, what kind of heart openings in the protesters might be possible if the police lead with values in this way as opposed to law enforcement as an ideology? Um, it, it's kind of like there's always room for some kind of improvement, um, but it's very important to do the work, um, whether it is a organization, a business, um, even something that is tax payer funded um, in order to, you know, make the world essentially a better place. And it's kind of what I'm no noticing as far as um, the external um, outcomes uh, from this book as well, is that, again, if you're doing the work on yourself, whether you're a per just a person or an organization, there is going to be an external manifestation of those values that affect the world around you. Uh, which I, I really like because we're, although the focus is not on resources, it's not on money, it's not on um, success uh, as far as like what society might count it as, um, you will still make your internal world and even the external world around you a better place by doing this work. Uh, I really like that. Yeah, and, and it's not that they won't do law enforcement. They have to do law enforcement. In fact, in, as you read the, the story, the, the memorandum of understanding between the police department and the university was if there is a breaking of the law, then they will act and the university cannot tell them who to leave and who to go after. That's just not okay. So there's a 
there's a clear separation of responsibility there that they if someone's broken the law they're obliged to act and and that's uh, that's kind of beautiful because you know it, this book's theme is you are stuck or are constrained by these very narrow set of rules and in this case law enforcement but that is that is flipped that becomes your creative canvas you, you're not there for that systemic value for for checking the box saying i enforce the law you're there or at least this police department is there to express their caring for their community basically around public safety and it shows up also as education through law enforcement and and that's a very important distinction there it's a, you know it, it would be a different book if we said oh we're not going to do law enforcement anymore we're just going to do community service nope that's not that's not the case they still are a police department they you don't want to mess with them if you have uh, you know bad intentions in mind they they will act as police officers but within the boundaries of law enforcement what they are expressing is the value of public safety and bringing to fore their identity as educators in order to keep people safer and that's the beauty of the story that they're they're still within those narrow set of rules it's like ballet right you have to accept the narrow rules of ballet on how you twist and turn but how you twist and turn is not where the feeling is it's through that that you express a great story you you spark people's hearts you you light a spark for everyone you know that's that's what this is about uh so um moving from the police department example um now we've been talking about the three goddess braid through this entire chapter. We've been talking about how it all weaves together. Uh, we've seen an example, even with the Stanford Police Department, of how it can be beautifully, beautifully used. And um, we've seen how, you know, it's very inspirational. Um, it's very uh, powerful when it's properly aligned and everything is mapped out properly. However, there's it's kind of like a, a yin and a yang or, or two sides of the same coin there's also um a side of having essentially the, these superpowers in a way that people have to also be careful of um it's kind of like someone all of like diving into psychology you know or someone trying to become a therapist or something like that and and they're learning all of the, these different things and methods. And all of a sudden they're, they're around their friends and their family. And they're like, you know, I, I, I want to, I want to type you. I want to, I want to, I'm so excited about everything that I've learned in this psych in psychology that it's like, I want to give you this method or I want to show you uh, what you might be doing wrong or, you know, things of that nature. And, not everyone is ready to do the internal work. And on top of it, th that in that example of someone being the psychologist, they might not even be using the method correctly. Um, and so I think that really comes into play as we get into the next section uh, of shadows. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about shadow, uh, the beginning of this and where we're going with it? Yeah, this is a this is a very important section in the book. Like, if you if you don't like the book so far, you've given up. Then of course we don't need this. 
but this becomes important if you like what you're reading and you want to apply it because then we have to become aware of power of, of the temptation of uh getting somebody else's attention and and that is quite a how should i put it that is a seductive thing it's like when somebody is giving you attention and you realize um you know you and you don't realize that, that there's a big responsibility of taking care of the conversation of making sure it's meaning its purpose it can go in strange directions and and history is full of such examples where people have misused the attention that has come their way for purposes that the other other person or other uh, communities have not signed up for and so so this this part is really like me getting freaked out by oh my god what if crazy things happen with this work and it can happen right we've we've taken the most beautiful most delicate ideas in humanity and and abused it <laughs> and 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 used it to to control others or to satisfy um things that should not have been satisfied in that context so so this is really me getting aware and it all um you know it, it, it's through a series of experiences doing this for many years where i've received feedback that hey you know you you're excited to use this you know latest toy that you have but do you aware that you have an upper hand when you are mapping somebody and you know if you if you're in a friendship friendship is about equality i i'm not in a higher position or lower position we are we are equals but when i offer this to a friend i've got to be very mindful that i am asking my friend to make themselves vulnerable and to give me that position of power where i can guide the conversation and there really is in mutuality in in a sense so so that's what that's how the story begins in in shadows where a friend gave me that feedback that he he was uh struggling in the mapping conversation and and he couldn't quite explain what was bothering him and when he finally did it was like oh my god he's absolutely right there, there is a, there is an issue here you you're not a friend anymore when you're doing this conversation you're almost like a therapist and and and, and i'm not saying it's not okay to do it i'm just saying that you need to be aware that you are switching roles and both sides the person you're helping has to be aware that this switch is happening and they have to be okay with it and if not you really can't proceed in this conversation yeah it says in 237 when you enter this conversation with someone it is one where there is a power imbalance the listener is going in with an open heart and the one being mapped is sharing intimate things from a vulnerable space it goes without saying that trust is paramount and on 238 it says in my case my friend was looking for me to reciprocate by sharing my angst with him not solve his angst um and again that goes back to we don't know where people are also at in life someone might not be looking for you to solve it someone might actually be doing the work themselves and someone trying to interrupt that work might actually mess things up as well Have, which which actually brings up a, a interesting question for me um okay um have you ever come across someone that has been doing work on themselves that is very similar to the kind of work that can be found in this book essentially like trying to find their own uh heart values head values things of that nature but then someone else might come along and try to help them find 
their head value or heart value, but because it's someone else coming with it and not the person who's already doing the work, it's almost like interrupting the progress. Oh yeah, absolutely. In in fact, uh, I I don't I don't offer this to people saying, "Hey, I can help you." It's like only when people come and say, "Hey, I've heard that you know you you've got a decision making background, and can you help with this uh, and and help me clarify what I should do because I'm confused." Only only when people make that ask is when I get activated. I try really hard not to just jump in and say, hey, I got a better way of thinking about this. It's uh, because it's a very sacred conversation, right? And people are doing this work on themselves. You you don't want to short circuit uh, their their journey. You know, the, the picture that comes to my mind, you know, one of my teachers, um, she, I think I've credited her someplace in the book, Amba. She has this very, very interesting metaphor of a butterfly. So a caterpillar, struggles out of the cocoon to become a butterfly and the process of struggle is what pushes the fluid into the wings and if if someone takes compassion has compassion towards the caterpillar and says oh i'm going to make it easier for you and and cuts off the cocoon with scissors to let the caterpillar out that caterpillar will come out as a withered butterfly which will never fly because the juice didn't flow into the wings the struggle is what makes it a butterfly and and we have to be very mindful of this not to short circuit someone's struggle it's 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 a very tricky thing because at what point do you you know you can help and and what point do you step in and one has to listen very deeply to oneself um the answer i have found for myself is someone has to make the request if they don't make the request then the best I can do is hold space. It's not for me to <laughs> solve every problem that comes that that I see I see in front of me. It, it's it's not because because it's not it's not clear that I can actually make a positive difference. I could make it worse. Right, and so it becomes kind of tricky to to know when to get involved and when to not, unless someone is specifically uh, asking you to map them. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the entrepreneurs in this next section. Voluntary may not be truly voluntary because it is like the approach was a um, little different on how the entrepreneurs accepted this mapping. Yeah, I think this is a, this was a big eye opening lesson and I'm so grateful to the organization that uh, encouraged the work or, or supported me in the work. And, and, and we discovered that, Hey, um, the the uh, the entrepreneurs who we were funding, they they were very you know if you if you have a process as a, as a, an investment organization, they, they don't follow the process, and and there's such a big difference in the in the mapping conversation before the funding than it was after the funding because before the funding, you kind of hear what they want you to hear, and that's not the point. It's almost like. Uh, it, it almost feels like torture. Like, no, you don't have to go through this. This is voluntary. Even though we're saying it's voluntary, they, they, it's you have to be you have to be really aware of the power difference. It's it's not the right place to do it. So one has to be very mindful that hey, if somebody really wants a job, let's say, or or you know, or funding or whatever it is, and you're the one making that big decision, and then you say, oh, I want to do this deep 
listening exercise, you're really not set up for success because the power imbalance will get in the way. It, it, it will make a difference and people will, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not guaranteed, but people um, have other objectives than being listened to in this way. Let me put it that way. So, so this is a very, very sacred conversation. If you mix it up, it's not going to take you to the places it's designed to take you to. Mm. Mm. And, and, and um, it also kind of gets into like, you know, um, the perils of spiritual leadership as well. It's talking about uh, the four areas in which teachers and communities most often get into difficulties um, based on Jack Kornfield's 1993 book, A, pa A Path with Heart. Um, the difficulties are misuse of power, money, harm through sexuality, and addiction to alcohol or drugs. And so the reason I mention these uncomfortable aspects is to sensitize readers who either offer a listening ear or take the services of someone willing to listen in their values exploration process. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's like, <laughs> again, it's like, um, you know, going back to that, that old comic book phrase with the great power comes great responsibility. It's almost like now that you're gaining these superpowers, you have to be very careful about um, how they're used unless you are simply using it for yourself um, and, and don't really plan to do much more uh, than that. Um, talking about leadership, um, you know, or do you have a, a little more that you would like to say on that aspect? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's humbling to see massive spiritual movements things that are extremely inspiring, you know, people who are extremely inspiring, and then suddenly they have a fall because of these temptations, these four temptations that you, you see listed by Jack Cornfield. So it's, it's humbling because people much smarter than you, much more accomplished than you are falling in these ways. And so why would you think that you're immune to it? So it's just very important that if you're doing these kinds of things, these, uh, these conversations, that you be aware that you're human too, and that you could have these temptations. So be very, very careful about this. Then ask yourself, are those interfering in the conversation? If they are, then you're not the right person to do this conversation. Because when people enter on the other side of this, they're not looking to have, uh, let's say a relationship with you on sexuality, or uh, they're not, you know, or maybe they're looking for a job and you should be focusing on, well, are they the right person for the job? and instead of giving, taking them into these vulnerable spaces. So it's about getting really clear about the purpose of the space you're in and not mixing it with some other purpose. And, and, and especially when you're the one in power, that's the, that's the key thing, that's the responsibility piece you're alluding, alluding to, you know, especially because it's completely natural. Somebody may feel, oh, I'm very attracted to this person well, you're not the right person to hold space anymore if that's the case. How could you listen to a person deeply if you're dealing with feelings of attraction? So, so send this person somewhere else or deal with these feelings and don't, don't, talk, don't get into this space until you can put those feelings aside. So it's, it's basically taking responsibility for your thoughts and your feelings and, and figuring out, can you be authentic 
in this conversation. And if you can't, then that's perfectly fine. Just let that person know you're not the right person for this. And I think, I think the, the next section as well is very, very important. Like for me, uh, it actually uh, touched a little nerve with me and psychological safety uh, is basically talking about how, um, you know, you have to be careful not to pass judgment. It's almost like um, in psychology, when you have certain types like, um, oh, this person's more agreeable or this por- person is more um, neurotic or whatever, you, you have to be careful about, um, you know, in that example, someone being like, oh, based on what you just told me, you're, you're this type, which means you're going to act this way and you're that person. Oh, I see it now. I see exactly what, what you are. Like those kind of judgments, you have to be very careful about, um, you know, like, for example, if you're trying to map your friends, you're trying to map someone that um, is not in a good place. Because, for example, as, as someone um, as someone that really tries to do a lot of self-evaluation, um, if I met someone that, in in my view was like an expert on mapping. Okay. So like, say for you, you, for example, like say I asked you to, to map me, you know, to help me with the mapping, the value mapping process. Um, I would take what you say to heart. Um, I'm just that type of person. Um, I would take what you say to heart, uh, very personally. And that could be dangerous if you were someone that I placed that trust in and yet you, past certain judgments or you weren't, you know, um, well-versed in this enough. Like basically maybe you skimmed this book really quickly and then you're like, Oh, I'm going to go out and and map everybody. Um, (laughs) so it's, it's very important to be very careful, um, you know, not to pass judgments on people too quickly, especially if they are opening up that trust. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't even say too quickly. You should you don't pass judgment on people. Period. In this process, that's the commitment we are making. Because the moment you pass judgment, we've lost the right to have this conversation. It's just that simple. This is a this is a process where you are listening to the other person in the full belief and the commitment that you are going to discover they are a god of something, and you're trying to discover what they are a god of. And a trace of judgment and, and that reverence for the other person will disappear. You, you're literally listening a God into existence, that person who's in front of you. So it's a very, very sacred form of listening. And, and if you, you know, this is, a, this is kind of interesting. It's like I'm using the lowercase g here. But, but for those, you know, those of us who identify with secular humanism, it's just, it's just words to say that, you have deep regard, you're building deep regard for a human being. And in, in the, in the commitment that you're going to find it, right. That's, that's a different kind of conversation. That's, that's a very special, very meaningful conversation. So judgment has no place in it. If the moment you judge, it's like, no, this is not, this is not the conversation you're designing in this book. And that's very important to, to remember as soon as you're judging that that's nope, <laughs> it's done. Um, and then, uh, the, this last section here you had is exploitative endorsement. Um, and this was, uh, this was interesting because it's talking about like, um, leaders, 
uh, basically taking the values and using it as a way to uh, increase productivity or to increase uh, monetary value um, to motivate people to do better. And that's like, that's not the whole, that's not the reason why you do this. Uh, it's almost what a leader should do is um, do the work on him or herself and the other people get inspired by their aliveness and, 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 and they get motivated in that way. And then that, that's okay. But um, going with the focus of, you know, Hey, I want everyone in my business to, to, to go through this work so we can increase profit. <laughs> that's a, that's a terrible way of going about it. But yeah, um, before I read the questions for reflection, is there anything else that you would like to say on this section? I know that was a long conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll just thank the reader for staying with the book this far because it is a long journey that builds upon itself chapter by chapter. So the fact that you made it this far says that you're really resonating with these things. And if you are, <laughs> you're a homie. So um, I, I really appreciate that. And yeah, I'm looking forward to deepen it even more with the next chapter. But thank you. Thank you for your attention. Yes, thank you for sticking with us. Um, and so the questions for reflection are the following. Number one, how do you relate to the notion of declaring your value foundation for your decision making? Number two, how do you relate to the trap of becoming a fossil if you do not use your values normatively. Number three, how do you relate to the trap of losing yourself with just a normative science where you haven't given yourself the space to know yourself first? Number four, how do you relate to the reframing of strategy as coming out ahead towards your truth? Your can also be interpretive collectively. Number five, what does the nature conservancy's story open up for you? Number six, what does policing with values open up for you? If you are strongly on one side of the spectrum of the debate on policing, who are you now after reading that story? Number seven, reflecting on your commitment to deepening with values in your profession, what comes up for you? And last, uh, in this section, you have a your mapping section in which someone can engage uh Try and try to form their own three goddess braid, which I love very much. Um, so with that being said, that is the end of chapter seven. Please join us next time as we get into chapter eight, the neuroscience of values. Yes. And I, I will, I'll say that, you know, don't, don't miss out on that QR code on that mapping. Uh, you can download a template, print it out and use it many times. So that's available. Yes, thank you. Yep, thank you for mentioning that as well. Yes. And um, all right, so everyone join us for the next chapter, chapter eight, neuroscience of the neuroscience of values.